Will you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew 5. And these brothers are coming forward because they have Bibles in hand. They're going to make their way to the back, and as they do, if you need a Bible, get their attention, and they'll get one of those to you. It's marked at Matthew 5. As we today begin a new series in the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's said that familiarity breeds contempt. But perhaps worse than that, because more subtle, familiarity can breed complacency. And I think that we can become complacent about the amazing wonder of the Savior that we proclaim. The truth is, there is no one like Jesus Christ in all history. In a book titled, What If Jesus Had Never Been Born?, the author says, Some people have made transformational changes in one department of human learning or in one aspect of human life, and their names are forever enshrined in the annals of human history. But Jesus Christ, the greatest man who ever lived, changed virtually every aspect of human life, and most people don't know it. The greatest tragedy of the Christmas holiday each year is not so much its commercialization, gross as that is, but its trivialization. How tragic it is that people have forgotten him to whom they owe so very much. Jesus says in Revelation 21.5, Behold, I make all things new. Everything that Jesus Christ touched, he utterly transformed. He touched time when he was born into this world. He had a birthday, and that birthday utterly altered the way we measure time. Someone has said he turned aside the river of ages out of its course and lifted the centuries off their hinges. And now the whole world counts time as B.C., before Christ, and A.D. Unfortunately, in most cases, our illiterate generation today doesn't even know what A.D. stands for. It stands for a Latin phrase, Anno Domini, in the year of the Lord. It's ironic, he says, that the most vitriolic atheist writing a propaganda letter to a friend must acknowledge Christ when he dates that letter. The atheistic Soviet Union was forced in its constitution to acknowledge that it came into existence in 1917 in the year of the Lord. When you see row after row of books at the library, every one of them even if it contains anti-Christian diatribes, has a reference to Jesus Christ because of the date. Emperors and governors were the men with power in Christ's day. But now their bodies rot in their graves and their souls await the final judgment. They have no followers today. No one worships them. No one serves them or awaits their bidding. Not so with Jesus. Napoleon, who was well accustomed to political power, said that it would be amazing if a Roman emperor could rule from the grave, and yet that is what Jesus has been doing. As an aside, the author says we would disagree with him, though, in that Jesus is not dead, he's alive. But Napoleon said this, I search in vain in history to find the similar to Jesus Christ, or anything which can approach the gospel. Nations pass away, thrones crumble, but the church remains. The church has made more changes on earth for good than any other movement in history. And here are just a few of the accomplishments the world has enjoyed due to the most extraordinary figure in world history, Jesus Christ. Hospitals, which essentially began during the Middle Ages. Universities, which also began during the Middle Ages. 
And most of the world's greatest universities were started by Christians for Christian purposes. Literacy and education for the masses, civil liberties, the abolition of slavery, both in antiquity and in modern times. Modern science, the elevation of the status of women, benevolence and charity following the Good Samaritan ethic, higher standards of justice, the elevation of the common man, high regard for human life, human life, the civilizing of many barbarian and primitive cultures, greater development of art and music, the inspiration for the greatest works of art, the countless changed lives transformed from liabilities into assets to society because of the gospel. And that's all not to mention the eternal salvation of countless souls. Today and over the next several weeks, we get to hear from Jesus. And we get to hear from him in the most famous and most powerful sermon ever delivered, that which we call the Sermon on the Mount. We need to ask God then to help us. As we do, let's remember our brother Larry Castle. Many of you got the email that I sent to you this week that Larry lost his younger brother and he is now with his family up north. And so let's pray for them as we bow before the Lord. Father, we thank you that we can come to you on this, the Lord's Day. The first day of the week, the day on which you chose to raise from the dead and now has been commemorated for these nearly 2,000 years. We thank you that we have the opportunity to open your book and to read the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in this famous sermon. Help us to have minds that are attentive and hearts that are open. Lord, we remember our brother Larry. We thank you for him. We thank you for his family. We thank you for his love for you and his love for your people. And Lord, we grieve with him in the loss of his, his brother. We pray that you will help him as he has opportunity to preach at this funeral service, that you will grant him an anointing, that you will grant him the ability to communicate your word clearly, and that there would be through this tragedy those who would come to you, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. We've given you an outline, as we do each week, that's inserted in your program. If you don't have that out already, I encourage you to do that. And I say, first of all, that Jesus is absolutely unique. Jesus is absolutely unique. Now, here's why I say that. Notice chapter 5 of Matthew and verse 1. It says, when Jesus saw the crowds. Now, why were there crowds following Jesus? The verses just prior to this, at the end of chapter 4, give us the answer. Verse 23 of chapter 4. It says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now, most of us know that when Jesus was on earth 2,000 years ago, that he did miracles of healing and casting out of demons. But the supernatural works that Jesus did were more than just miracles. They were more than to simply show people what he could do, but rather they were miraculous and at the same time signs. That is, the miracles that Jesus did signified, signified something. 
A sign serves to confirm, to validate, to prove the reality of something. And so Jesus' miracles served as signs to confirm the things which the Lord was teaching and claiming. They validated the message that God was proclaiming at that time, serving as proof of the truth of that message. And what was the message that Jesus was preaching? Chapter 4 and verse 17. Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So Jesus is preaching, the kingdom is near, because he is here. And then he does the miracles as signs that what he was claiming about himself was true. That he was the king come to establish his kingdom. Now the first part of your Bible, what we call the Old Testament, predicted that the one who would come as God's king would do miracles as a sign to show that indeed the kingdom had come. Isaiah chapter 35. Be strong, do not fear, your God will come. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. And the prophet Zechariah tells us that he would cast out demons. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will remove the spirit of impurity from the land. And indeed, we just read from chapter 4 of Matthew that Jesus cast out demons. And in Matthew chapter 12, for example, Jesus said, If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. What this means, friends, is that Jesus' healing and casting out demons was a sign that he was the, the one that the Old Testament had promised would come as God's king. The healings were evidence that he was the chosen one. And that is why I say in your outline, Jesus is absolutely unique in these two respects. The first is, he is the Messiah. He is the Messiah. God made promises to men like Abraham and to David about the coming Savior and King. And when the New Testament opens with this very book that we're considering, Matthew, it says this in the very first chapter. There were 14 chapter, or generations as it gives the genealogy of Jesus. 14 generations in all from Abraham to David. 14 from David to the exile to Babylon. And 14 from the exile to the Messiah. And then goes on to identify him as Jesus. Now this word Messiah is the Old Testament word in Hebrew, Mashiach. And it means the anointed one, the, the chosen one. And in the New Testament, the equivalent of that title, Messiah, is Christ, Christos, the chosen one. So Christ is, as you've heard me say a number of times, not his last name. When we say Jesus Christ, actually Jesus is his name and Christ is his title, the anointed one, the chosen one. And that is why the Bible will say things like it does in 1 John 5. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the anointed one. Jesus is the chosen one. And so these signs were necessary of proof of Jesus' claims because, as one commentator says, historians tell us that at the time of Jesus there were no less than 60 men who claimed to be the Messiah. And Jesus set himself apart from all of them by proving himself to be the Messiah by the signs that he performed. Jesus is absolutely unique because he's the chosen one promised centuries before in the Old Testament. But he is more than just a chosen man. In fact, I say secondly in your outline, 
He is the, he is the Messiah, but he is also God. He is God. In these predictions, in the first part of your Bible, among them is this famous one from Isaiah chapter 7. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, what does that have to do with Jesus being God? It is this, that when Jesus comes into the world then, and that's recorded in the first chapter in Matthew, Matthew 1, here's what the Bible tells us. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call his name Emmanuel. And then in the text itself, this is not my parenthesis, this is Matthew's. He translates the word Emmanuel for us. It means God with us. So there is, friends, no one like Jesus. He is absolutely unique because he is the chosen one, the Messiah, and because he is God himself. And I say, secondly, therefore, Jesus' teaching is absolutely authoritative. Jesus' teaching is absolutely authoritative. Jesus is absolutely unique. He's the Messiah. He is God. Because he is God, what he says has absolute authority. His teaching is absolutely authoritative. Verse 1 of Matthew 5. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Now, Jesus ascending a mountain has reminded many a commentator of something that happened 1,500 years before the event about which we're reading and we'll cover over the next several weeks. This thing that happened 1,500 years before involved the first lawgiver, Moses. The Bible tells us in Exodus 19, the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And there Moses received, as we know, the Ten Commandments from God. And of those commandments, Jesus says in this sermon things like this. In verse 21, notice in chapter 5. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And then verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And in this sermon, Jesus says this kind of thing several more times in verses 31 and 33 and 38 and 43. Verse 1 tells us that, Jesus went up to this mountain, and then it says he sat down. And sitting down was the accepted posture of the synagogue or of the school teacher. A person teaching from a position of authority, and Jesus assumes that position of authority when he goes to this mountain and then sits down before the, the people. Matthew 23, Jesus says this, The teachers of the law sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. Again, this idea of a seat and sitting as a position of authority. And often those who were being taught would stand as they listen to the one in authority. Verse 2 of Matthew 5 says, He began to teach them. Now that phrase that's translated, He began to teach them, is literally, get this, He opened His mouth and began to teach them. Now that seems to be an unusual way to say that. 
When you ask your child what he or she learned at school or at Sunday school, after the usual answer, nothing. If you do get an answer, it will never be, well, she opened her mouth and taught us algebra. So why is it phrased that way? He opened his mouth and then, he, and then taught them. Well, these are terms lifted out of the Old Testament where prophets would sit and speak and the scriptures say they opened their mouths to signify a solemn disclosure of truth, a revelation from God. The Bible is saying here that Jesus is giving revelation from God. And what you are about to hear, what we are about to see over the next several weeks then, is serious business. This is truth from God Almighty. But Jesus' teaching went beyond that of being a prophet on behalf of God because, of course, as we've already seen, Jesus is God. So the prophets would speak for God, but hear this, Jesus is the God about whom those prophets spoke. The prophets would say, thus saith the Lord, and Jesus says, I say to you, because I am God. That's why at the end of this marvelous sermon, three chapters worth from chapter 5 and 6 and 7, if you look at chapter 7 and verse 28, It says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. You see, friends, our culture is adrift. And it's adrift because it does not have a foundation of authoritative truth. That authoritative truth comes from the word of God, and Jesus is the God whose word we so desperately need. Our culture is bought into the lie of relativism. No one in our culture can say what truth is. You have your truth and I have my truth. And that's because we've rejected the one who is, the Bible says, full of grace and truth. Jesus is absolutely unique. And Jesus' teaching is absolutely authoritative. And then thirdly in your outline, Jesus' teaching is absolutely required. Jesus' teaching is absolutely required. Jesus came as the Messiah, the chosen one, to set up the kingdom that God had promised hundreds of years before. But God had also made clear that only the righteous could be accepted into the kingdom. So you find things like this in the first part of your Bible. Psalm 24 says, asks, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? And then it gives the answer. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. Same thing is found in Malachi chapter 3. The question is asked, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? And the answer is given, for he will be like a refiner's fire. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. So one commentator says this, The picture here is of a pot which has been heated to the melting point of metal. The raw material is put into the pot so that by being subjected to the heat of the fire, the pure metal may be separated from the dross. The dross is cast away and the pure metal is retained. 
That's the picture the prophet Malachi gave of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Before he reigns in his kingdom, he will separate what is pure from the dross, the good from the evil. So Jesus was promising by his miracle, proving by his miracles that he was indeed the chosen one, the Messiah that had been predicted. And therefore the kingdom was near. And so this naturally raised the question in the minds of those who heard Jesus. How can we enter your kingdom? How righteous must we be in order to be saved? Will our righteousness, our good lives, be enough to get us into your kingdom? Now remember, these people that Jesus is teaching are people who had been taught by a group called the Pharisees, who took the law of Moses, contained in the first five books of your Bible, and they reduced the law of Moses to a system of mechanical obedience and external observances. They divided the law into 365 prohibitions and 250 commands. They taught the people that if they observed these things, they would be acceptable to God. They substituted the traditions of men for the revelation of God. They trusted external observances to give them a pure heart. And Jesus castigated these false teachers many times in his ministry. For example, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus said, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. And then he says to them, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And so notice then in this sermon, as this question is undoubtedly on the minds of these people, how can we be righteous? The kingdom is upon us. The king is here. How can we enter that kingdom? Jesus says in chapter 5 and verse 20, notice, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. These teachers had perverted God's law, and Jesus now gives the correct interpretation of it. Contrary to what these false teachers taught, the law was never intended to be a means of salvation, but rather a standard of how those who belong to God, and they are called the blessed ones in what we call the Beatitudes that we'll begin to see next week. The blessed ones, those who have been who belong to God and have been accepted by Him, the law is intended to be a standard by which they are to live. And so I say that Jesus' teaching is absolutely required, and it's required for two things, I say in your outline. It's absolutely required for right living. Jesus' teaching is required for right living. Contrary to what the religious leaders thought and taught, the law involved much more than just external obedience. Jesus clarifies what's involved when he says that it extends to not just our actions, but to our desires and to our words. It requires not just loving your neighbor, but loving your enemies, he says in this sermon. It requires not just avoiding vengeance, but turning the other cheek, he says. It does not merely forbid murder, it forbids anger. 
It does not just forbid adultery, it forbids lust. It does not simply require that you do the best you can. Notice what verse 48 of chapter 5 says. Matthew 5, 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. (laughs) Yikes. If this is what's required to be part of God's kingdom, who can ever make it? Who can live up to this impossible standard? Well, it's important, friends, for us to see to whom these words are directed. Verse 1 says, Jesus went up on the mountain because of the crowds. But the end of that verse tells us specifically who it is that Jesus is talking to primarily in the sermon. It's not the crowds. But rather, again, notice verse 1 of chapter 5. It says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. So what we have here is Jesus speaking to his closest associates, to his first followers, those that he had already already called going back to chapter 4, and verses 18 to 22. And the crowds then are just, as it were, listening in while he instructs his disciples, those who have believed in him, those who are his followers. And we know he's speaking primarily to his disciples, not only because of what verse 1 says, but also a number of other factors. Let me give those to you. These people to whom Jesus is speaking apparently knows something of their need for God's grace. Because in verse 3, as we will begin to look at next week, chapter 5 and verse 3, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the spiritually impoverished, those who know their need for God's grace. Further, in the sermon, Jesus is speaking to people who can expect to be persecuted. In verse 11 of this sermon, chapter 5, he says, Blessed are you when you are persecuted. These are people who already have a guarantee of the kingdom. Because of those who are poor in spirit and those who will be persecuted, Jesus says theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And when in this sermon Jesus talks about things like giving and praying, he does not say you should do these things. But rather he says when you do these things because he assumes they're already doing them. And the question then I asked just a bit ago was this, who can live up to the standard that Jesus sets? And we've seen now that all of this is addressed to those who've believed in him, who are his followers, who are his disciples. Okay, so it's not just the hoi polloi, it's not just the crowds, it's not just everybody else, it's those that Jesus has called and those who have responded to Jesus' call, but still, how do they do it? How do they live up to this standard? How can we, his followers, take these commands seriously since they're so very lofty? Please note this, friends. Jesus' words to us are in the context of his works for us. Jesus' commands and his words to us are always in the context of his works for us. 
Now, why do I say that? Because surrounding these three chapters of this sermon of impossible commands is the display of Jesus' infinite power. We already saw that at the end of chapter 4, it says that Jesus was doing all these miraculous signs of healing. And then after that, we have the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5, 6, and 7. But that is followed in chapter 8 through the end of chapter 9 with all manner of displays of his power. So you have enveloping this sermon with all of these commands, displays of Jesus' works, his power. There's the healing of a leprous man, a paralytic. Demons are cast out. A dead girl is raised. The blind and mute are restored. And in the midst of all that, Jesus calms a raging storm. All of this before and after the Sermon on the Mount is designed to point his disciples, hear this, away from themselves and toward him. We can't do this. But God can do it in us and for us. Jesus' demands on us are to be seen in light of Jesus' gifts to us. This means that although Jesus gives law like Moses did in this sermon, he is not just giving us rules to keep here. Hear this. He gives us the power to do what is right. Moses could not do that. The Old Testament law could not do that. Moses could only tell us what to do. Jesus can work in us to do it. He shows his infinite power both before this sermon and after this sermon to remind those of us who have believed in him and so want to follow him and so want to emulate him and to please him that, Lord, we want to live up to your standard and we know we are spiritually impoverished, poor in spirit, but you can give us the power that we do not have. Jesus' teaching is absolutely required. It's required for right living. And then I say it's required for right relationship. As we read Jesus' words in the sermon, we are forced to ask, in the words of one commentator, can my poor deeds shine so brightly that they bring glory to God? Can my righteousness, my external observance of the law, exceed that of the Pharisees? Can I avoid anger and lust? Can I be perfect as God is perfect? (laughs) And some might foolishly claim that they can do these things. And others might respond with hopeless despair that says, I can never do this. But hear this, friends. Since we cannot meet Christ's standards... Notice what chapter 7, the last chapter of this sermon, says. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. Since we cannot meet Christ's standards, Jesus says in chapter 7 and verse 7, Ask, ah, this blessed thing, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. The asking is for the grace that we need in order to do this. The seeking is for the God of grace, who alone can do this. The knocking is for the door to grace that we all must enter. And then when we do that, recognizing our spiritual impoverishment, 
recognizing that God's demands are beyond our power, but certainly within His. And we ask Him, He grants that grace to all who ask, and then He makes us citizens of the kingdom that He had come to establish. Colossians 1 says this, He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He gives us His Spirit that's like the working of His mighty power, according to Ephesians chapter 1. And all of this is based on the work that Jesus will do in the near future after preaching the Sermon on the Mount. That most marvelous work is the apex. It is the culmination of all of the miraculous signs that He does before the Sermon and after the Sermon. It all comes to a crescendo in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. After preaching this sermon, he dies the death that we deserved. After living the life that we should have lived. You can't do this, but Jesus can. And Jesus has. And Jesus is determined to work his will in his disciples, in his followers. This Jesus enables his followers to do the many things that Christianity has accomplished throughout the centuries. And that's why I say there is no one like Jesus. We have opportunity to hear from him over these next weeks together. And I say in your take-home truth, Jesus calls us to blessed lives. Blessed lives. We'll begin next week with verse 3, looking at these blessings, the Beatitudes. He calls us to bless lives that are radically distinct from the world. And they are radically distinct because of His infinite power at work through us to do what we could not do of ourselves. Now that all begins with you being called out of the world and to Christ, being called to be His follower, being called to be His disciple. It started with these closest associates that he's speaking with in the sermon, and the crowds are listening in. It started for those disciples with him calling them, and he is now calling you. If you have never come to God through Jesus Christ, he is calling you. And let me say, friends, as the lawgiver and as your creator and Lord, he is commanding you, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And he offers for you the solution that you cannot find yourself. But you ask and it shall be given. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. We're going to bow and pray in just a moment. Those of us who are Jesus' disciples, let us pray to him in thankfulness for his infinite power that accomplishes in us what we could not do ourselves. And for those of you who do not know this Jesus Christ, the greatest one who ever lived, the Messiah, God himself, come as man. He died on the cross for your sin. He raised the third day and is alive today. And he is coming again and will establish his kingdom with those who have heard his voice and his call. And so here's what we do. You realize that you're a sinner. You're spiritually impoverished. Recognize that Jesus is the only answer to that. He died for your sins, paying them in full, past, present, and future. Repent of your sins. Lord, I'm going to go your way, not my way, and receive Jesus Christ into your life by praying from your heart to him. Lord, I'm a sinner, 
You're my Savior. I ask you to rescue me. I want to follow you with my life. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for the privilege, the grand, great privilege, of being able to look at these words of the greatest one who ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is unique among humanity, fully human, but also fully God, one unique person, God and man, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the grace that brought him to earth. And we thank you for the grace that he demonstrated in his works while on earth, healing and casting out demons, and most of all, dying but raising again on the third day. Jesus has infinite power. It is Jesus who is the creator of this world, the owner of this world, the sustainer of this world. It is Jesus who can do everything that we could not imagine. And so we are to come to him believing who he is and what he is able to do. And I thank you that at a point in time you drew me out of the world and to yourself, showing me your power to rescue me from the kingdom of darkness and bringing me into the kingdom of your dear son. We ask you to do the same thing now with others in this sacred moment. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to move upon their hearts and draw them to yourself such that they ask and seek and knock. Lord, we thank you for your grace when we were saved. And we thank you for your grace in sanctifying us now, in making us like Jesus. Help us over these next several weeks as we look at the lofty demands of our God. Help us, Lord, not to soften your demands at all, but help us to, all along the way, remember our absolute need for your grace in order for us to be what you have called us to be. We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.